You're listening to That Music Podcast with Bryson Tarbett, the curriculum designer and educational consultant behind That Music Teacher and the Elementary Music Summit. Each week, Bryson and his guests will dive into the reality of being an elementary music teacher and how music can truly be transformative in the lives of the students you serve. Show notes and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at thatmusicteacher.com. I'll tell you what, this is not an episode that you're going to want to miss. I might be a little biased because Rachel used to be part of team that, of the That Music Teacher team when we had blog contributors back in the day, um, but this episode with Rachel Ammons about dyslexia in the music classroom is one to really take notes and really to start get you to asking some questions about your own classroom. Rachel Ammons is going into her fourth year as a music educator. She currently works at a second through 12th grade independent school in Central Ohio that services students with ADHD, dyslexia, and executive dysfunction. She has a passion for adapting music lessons to be accessible to her students and wants to help other teachers learn the truth about ADHD and dyslexia. When she isn't at school, she loves reading, writing, crocheting, and spending time with her husband and one-year-old son. I'll tell you what, you are not going to want to miss this conversation. This is a wonderful in-depth conversation, and if you did not have the wonderful pleasure of going to Rachel's session on dyslexia in the music classroom at the Elementary Music Summit this, this summer, you are definitely going to want to catch this because she really goes into what dyslexia is, what we get wrong about it, and what that really means for us in the music classroom. So without any further, further ado from me or any more chatter, here is my conversation with Rachel Ammons about dyslexia in the music classroom. Hello and welcome back to That Music Podcast. Today I have Rachel Ammons and we're going to be talking about dyslexia in the music classroom. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining me again on That Music Podcast. Thanks for having me. So before we get too started, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So um, I teach at a 2 through 12 independent school in Central Ohio And um, my school focuses on servicing students who have primarily dyslexia and or ADHD, along with some other um, diagnoses. But those are the kind of primary ones that my school focuses on. Um, And so I am the music teacher there. So I teach 2 through 12 every day um, students with those backgrounds. And it's very interesting and a lot of fun. I love that. I know we've had conversations about your your teaching situation and like the students that you serve. So I really I'm really excited to hear you more a little bit more about your experience with that. But what got you interested in really looking at those best practices relating to teaching students who are neurodiverse or might have dyslexia? Yeah. So um, like you, when I first uh, graduated, I didn't land a music job right away. I kind of got into subbing first. And through subbing, I um, was in a lot of special education and intervention classrooms, and I really enjoyed that. But never um, had I combined that interest with music until I got this specific job. And when I got this job, I actually was hired basically a week and a half before school started, and I knew nothing about dyslexia or ADHD in the music classroom. And so I've been kind of doing research on my own um, and kind of figuring out best practices to help my specific students because I never got any sort of coaching or training through college or the real world until I was just kind of thrown into it in this job. 
Okay. So for a little bit of backstory, how long have you been in your current position? Uh, I'm going into year four now. That's awesome. That's crazy though. <laughs> I feel like yeah. we just started. Um, <laughs> so when you kind of got thrown into that, what were some of the things that you learned like really early on that you needed more support with? Like where, where when was like the first thing you're like, okay, I need to really dive into some of the research and some of the best practices. What were some of those experiences like? Um, a lot of it kind of came, as you might expect, when I was having students start like writing music, like not necessarily composing, but just during activities where we were like practicing writing notes and um, sometimes composing and whatnot. And I realized that a lot of kids could do things when we were doing it as a group, but when they did things alone, um, they were struggling and I didn't understand where the disconnect was. And then there were also students who struggled with um, like keeping a steady beat. And I didn't know until doing my research that that's actually a big um, sign that a student might have dyslexia. And so those were kind of the two biggest things to me where I'm like, okay, something's going on here. I need to figure out how to help these guys. I think it's so interesting how things can be so connected. Like you wouldn't think that dyslexia and keeping a steady beat would be related, but I love that that you kind of figured that out through your research. So let's take a step back first. And will you tell anyone who's listening, what is dyslexia? Sure. So dyslexia, a lot of people think of being like a visual impairment because a lot of people, when they, um, see dyslexia or hear of someone having dyslexia, um, they think of letters being reversed or words being switched around. But dyslexia is actually a neurological impairment. So there's actually something going on in the brain that causes letters and words to be reversed. But of course, that's not the only symptom of dyslexia. That's just kind of one of the one of the struggles that can happen. Basically, it is a impairment where people struggle to decode. So breaking down symbols, figuring out what they sound like, what they mean. Um, so that can affect reading comprehension, listening comprehension, all sorts of different things. Okay. So I know that you're obviously not a medical professional, so feel free to dive as deep into this or as shallow as you want. But <laughs> how does someone go about getting di- diagnosed with dyslexia and is a diagnosis necessarily important? Good question. So Um, At my school, of course, most of the kids already have their diagnosis before they come to me. So I don't know the specifics of like the process, but I do know that um, when a teacher or a parent is concerned, they will reach out to their um, provider, their medical provider, um, and go through an evaluation. So it's not just a single test that a student takes where like if you answer a certain way, oh, you have dyslexia. it's a full evaluation where there is some testing involved. Um, There is some observations involved, there are interviews. And basically through all of that information, they come to a diagnosis. Now, um, the question of a diagnosis being important, I think that kind of varies from person to person um, because there are people out there, I'm sure, that have dyslexia that don't realize it because they've managed their symptoms. It doesn't affect them severely enough for them to be like, okay, I need to go get an evaluation. But for other people, other students who are finding themselves falling behind their peers 
a diagnosis can be super important because the diagnosis can be the first step into implementing an action plan to help that student succeed. I think it's really important. I love how you talked about the you know diagno- the diagnosis isn't necessarily going to make or break someone, but not having it could be very very hard on 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 a student because you know they're not going to be able to start getting those those resources they need uh, without necessarily having a diagnosis or at least with without someone kind of going hey I th- I think there's something up here let's start this process and see what we can find out um, beyond. The, I know you talked about people thinking it was a visual impairment, but beyond that, what are some things that people typically get wrong about dyslexia? Um, yeah, the, the biggest one I think is that people think it's a visual thing because of that decoding aspect of it where there's the struggle to remember and recall the sound or the meaning of a symbol on the page. Um, and oftentimes when kids... Um, are first learning to write, sometimes they'll reverse letters. Um, that can be a symptom of dyslexia, but it's, again, not guaranteed. Often when kids are learning how to write, they'll reverse their letters. So that's not a guarantee that they have dyslexia. Um, the other one is that a lot of people think that kids with dyslexia are lazy when actually they're often working much harder than their peers just to keep up. Because if their peers didn't have any trouble learning to read, they're doing just fine in school, typically. Whereas if a student with dyslexia has kind of gone under the radar and like hasn't gotten that diagnosis and doesn't have an action plan yet, they may kind of fall into task avoidance behaviors where they just kind of don't do the work um, because they they aren't successful with it. and not being good at something can really hurt, especially if they see that their peers are really good at it already. And so a lot of people see these task avoidant behaviors and they're like, oh, that kid's just lazy. When really they've been working super hard, but they just can't do it the same way their peers have been able to so far. That's something that really kind of grinds my gears about a lot of neurodiversity is where people are like, oh, they're just lazy. Oh, they're just, they don't want to try anything. Well, Yeah, because sometimes when you've been going your entire life and nothing is easy or everything is such a challenge, sometimes you might want to go, yeah, well, I'm not even going to try because if I don't try, I can't fail. And that's where I think a lot of people get neurodiversity wrong is that what it looks like on the outside is completely different than what it actually is. So I love how that you brought that up. Um, So speaking about what it might look like in a classroom, how does dyslexia impact a student in in the classroom in general, but especially like specific in the music classroom? So in the music classroom, the biggest one um, is probably the steady beat because for some reason um, in the brain, the area that is able to keep a steady beat is very closely linked to the area that is ready to be able to learn how to read written language. And so a lot of my students struggle to keep a steady beat. And so we work a lot on showing the steady beat in different areas of our body, but also um, ways that it can impact in the classroom is the decoding aspect. So when we learn um, a new rhythm, for example, like if we're working on TT today, and um, they may forget the name of it, or they may forget 
how many beats a certain thing is supposed to get because that decoding aspect, they're trying to get it into their long-term memory so that they can remember it. But just getting over that hump is pretty difficult. And then writing. So sometimes kids are uh, have trouble like actually writing out new symbols. Um, the one that I see a lot is um, when we're writing quarter notes or eighth notes, they won't fill in the note heads. And so that's a big one that I see a lot. Or stacking notes. Like if I want them to write the word bead on their staff, instead of writing a quarter note on B, a quarter note on E, then on A, then on D, they'll stack them all together um, because there's a spatial aspect to it too. So those are kind of the biggest things that I see in the music classroom with dyslexia. What you just mentioned there with the stacking of notes in the staff, that was something that you you talked about in your presentation at the Elementary Music Summit. And I was sitting there going, yes, my students do this all the time because just like you said, there's such a spatial aspect. You know, we're not going left and right. We're also going up and down. Like There's just so many yeah. different moving parts and you have to be able to be aware of all those different things. And I think that that is something that you, um, you mentioned in, in your presentation about, you know, making the staff bigger. <laughs> like yeah. that's one thing. And that was like, wow. Cause when I think about my students that have struggled, even those without dyslexia, just all of my students that they, when they struggle with the staff, it's probably cause the staff is too, like it's most of the time it's the staff is too small. But when then I bring them up to the board and they, we're doing the, you know, the huge staff with the, you know, the chalk with the little wire thing that goes across, they're a lot more successful in that. So I love that you shared that strategy. Um, in there as well. But I think even not without even having specific strategies in place, just knowing that there are places that you might need to have a little bit more time to be aware with, aware of for students that are neurodiverse or with dyslexia, um, I think is a really poignant point of or point of topic that I would love to kind of dive into a little bit more. So I know I already kind of took away one of them, you know, with the larger staff, but what are some of the things that you have found in your classroom specifically that has made your classroom more accessible to students with dyslexia? Um, we use a lot of um, manipulatives. So instead of um, having them always use like a paper and pencil or a whiteboard and dry erase marker, we'll actually have like those little erasers that you can get at Target or popsicle sticks um, because I don't want the hurdle of the physical act of writing the thing to get in the way of me seeing if they actually understand a concept. So manipulatives have been a big thing in my classroom and just approaching things in different ways. So like with the steady beat, um, we don't always just march around the room. We don't always keep the beat in our feet. Sometimes we keep it in our laps. Sometimes we clap, um, all sorts of different things like that. I love that. That echoes a lot of like the principles of universal design for learning, which is kind of coming like, hey, if you want to know if they know that a TT has two sounds, are we assessing things that are unrelated? Like you said, like, are we assessing actually how they can write or how are we accessing their ghost meter because they have to clap it or something? So I love how you talk about like doing it in different ways. Um, even if like there is one way they might not be, you know, one one student might not be super successful in, well, still, still assessing that concept in different ways to allow them to be successful, which I think is a great, um, just like a pillar of good teaching, which is why I love having these conversations about neurodiversity because 99.99% of the time, what works for a student who's neurodiverse is also helpful for 
non-neurodiverse students. And that is what makes my, you know, it, it makes me happy because it's like, wow, we can actually serve all of our students better by taking some steps in learning about our diverse population. Yes, exactly. It's not that we're just catering to one population. These acts and these strategies are going to benefit every student that comes into our classroom. So Rachel, I know there's probably some people that are saying, okay, I would love to start taking some steps in making my classroom more accessible to students with dyslexia. So what is something a teacher can do this week to help their students in the music classroom that are, that are dyslexic? Um, I would say two things. I would say one, do a lot of activities with steady beat. So a favorite of mine is engine engine. Um, it's a classic keeping the beat in your feet, speeding it up, slowing it down, that kind of stuff. Um, but you can do it with pretty much any activity. Um, just really getting them to hear the steady beat, follow the steady beat and keep the steady beat on their own. Cause the more they're exposed to it, the more success that they'll have. It may take a while, but just getting that steady beat exposure and then um, kind of looking at your materials in your classroom and seeing if possibly the staff that you use may be too small for your students. Um, I have these whiteboards that have a staff already on them and I thought these are great. Every student can have one, but they're super small. So I don't use them anymore. (laughs) So just really looking at your materials and kind of evaluating is this good or do I kind of need to change things up? All right. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. What is one strategy that you often see people talk about with dyslexia that is not as helpful as people think it is? (laughs) Uh, Colorful overlays. Um, So basically because a lot of people think that dyslexia is a visual impairment, they will approach it as if it was a visual impairment. So the big one that was introduced to me during my in-service, my very first year at my school, was that dyslexia cannot be cured with colorful overlays. Because apparently there was this big movement back in the day, and you still see it sometimes on teacher message boards when talking about dyslexia, is that they'll just take a dyslexic student, they'll give them their paper, and just put a colorful sheet over top of it. And it's supposed to like magically cure it. But that doesn't really do anything. Um, I actually have a coworker who, when she first started, she had a student that she was tutoring. And um, this was before she worked at our school. Um, she was tutoring at somewhere else, um, had a student with dyslexia. And they brought her a colorful overlay to use and she put it on the student's paper and the student looked at her and he was like I can't read this because I'm I'm colorblind so this is all just gray now and so it's just colorful overlays don't use them sometimes a specific student may benefit from them but overall colorful papers colorful overlays special glasses that kind of stuff is not going to help because dyslexia is in the brain, not in the eyes. All right. And a little, you know, obviously I kind of set you up for that one because I knew that was one of, those, <laughs> one of those things that kind of grinds your gears a little oh, bit. Yeah. So I'm glad that we were able to bring that up. So Rachel, I know there are probably people that are going to want to reach out to you for some more questions or things like that. So where can we connect with you online? Sure. My, um, my biggest presence is on Instagram. You can find me at 
music class with Mrs. A. All right, Rachel, thank you so much for continuing this discussion that you've been leading for a while now. Um, I look forward to seeing your presentations at state conferences in the (laughs) near future. We'll make that happen. Um, So Rachel, thank you so much for chatting with me and I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much.